Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm really delighted that this season is sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts. I'm a Tide customer myself. It's where the account for my photography studio lives, and I've been really pleased with how they've looked after us for the last few years. They make it really easy for sole traders and freelancers to set up business accounts for free, with handy tools like accounting integrations, invoicing, and much more. People often think that your money isn't protected in a challenger bank or app-based bank, but Tide has FSCS protection in the UK, just like traditional bank accounts. Tide is dedicated to small businesses, and whenever I've needed help, the people on the app's chat function have been super responsive. Tide helps me grow my business. Go to tide.co or download the app today to find out more about getting started. This season of The Solo Collective is brought to you by Pension Bee an easy way to combine your existing pensions or start a new one. Pension B is a leading online pension provider and has enabled thousands of people to feel pension confident. I feel quite strongly about pensions. For a big chunk of my solo working life, I didn't have a pension, just an old workplace pension that I'd automatically contributed to in my early 20s. I have sorted things out now though. I also feel strongly about women getting pensions. Women typically face an income gap of 38% compared to men when they retire in the UK which is down to a combination of lower pay throughout our careers, taking career breaks to care for others, and women just not having their own pensions at all. This even leads to female pensioners living in poverty, as many as one in five in the UK. Download the app or head to pensionbee.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. Hello and welcome back to The Solo Collective. As ever, it's a real delight to have you here with us. Today I'm talking to Sue Ashford, who is someone I've talked to before. I interviewed her for my book Solo a few years back, and I've spoken to her subsequently for magazine articles because her area of expertise is so similar to my interests, and I just feel like she's got so much wisdom. She is the Michael and Susan Jandanoa Professor of Management and Organisations at the Ross School of Business at University of Michigan. And she studies, among many other things, solo workers. And she's one of not many people in the world who does that. She studies what she calls independent workers and gig workers, which is basically us lot. She has done such interesting research which she's done via talking to loads and loads of solo workers. And there's so much to learn from what she has discovered about what our challenges are and what we need in order to thrive in our solo working lives. She's also just written a book called The Power of Flexing, how to use small daily experiments to create big life-changing growth. And so that's all about how to grow as a human in all sorts of contexts. And it's fantastic. I just think you're really going to enjoy this interview because she is so wise about the way we work and what we need in order to survive and thrive in this strange way of solo working that we engage in. So I hope you're into it. 
Thank you ever so much for doing this. I'm really delighted to be talking to you again because, you know, we spoke a really long time ago when I was researching for my book and you were incredibly helpful to me then and you've been very supportive. And I'm also really delighted because I feel like you're one of the very few people possibly in the world who studies what I'm interested in, which is people working by themselves. You, I think you call them more independent workers. I say solo workers, you say gig workers as well, which obviously people often think is a term which is about Uber delivery drivers, but it's actually far broader than that. I mean, I think I count as a gig worker, right? Because I work short projects for lots of yes, different people. Right. <laughs> Why do you think it's so understudied? Do you think it's understudied? Because it seems to me that there are not a lot of people looking at what you're looking at. Well, it has been understudied. Right now, it's experiencing a giant wave of research on this topic, in part because academics kind of like to study themselves. And as they've been working remotely, they sort of feel more affinity with the title. So there's research coming out on side hustles, research coming out on multiple job holders, research coming out on gig workers. The surge of research has focused on gig work as that's technologically mediated by a platform, algorithmically controlled for, you know, drivers and door dashers and task rabbits and those kind of people. But that doesn't make sense to most of us because a gig is a gig. A gig is a piece of work that's done independently, working outside of an organizational structure. So the question you ask is why until now hasn't there been more? You know, I'm in the field called organizational behavior and people study the behavior of organizations and the behavior of people in organizations. So it's been very organizationally focused. I'm certainly not the only and I'm not even the first, but you know, I was certainly one of the early people doing it. There's also work in political science on and economics, is this a good thing for the worker, a bad thing for the worker, et cetera, um, that's going on as well. There's work in law. How do we legally kind of control this occurrence? You know, is are these people employees? You've maybe heard about those debates. That's a big law debate around it. There's kind of a lot of people doing research, but it's really having a surge right now. One review I'm working on said that the amount of publications coming out doubled year on year in the last couple of years. So, yeah, big surge. Wow, that's interesting. And and what about for you personally? Do you think of yourself as a solo worker in any part of your working life? And has that changed over the pandemic? Yeah. So there's certainly stuff I do solo. My entire research life is solo or with my co-authors. And you know, there's an organization that checks in with me yearly to say, well, what did you do this year, Sue? And I get to tell them. Early in my career, every three to five years, I would be examined all my work much more carefully. Once you're a tenured professor, once you're a full professor, there are no more promotions. There's You get a chair, which I now have a chair. By then, they assume that the desire to do research is sort of internal, you know, it's programmed into you. Yeah, no one's much checking. I do work on my own. So that part really fits with your book and with the study I did on how people thrive in independent work. My colleagues like to run around saying, we're all gig workers now. And it's like, well, some ways we are. We work out of our home offices. 
But in other ways, we are not. I mean, we have, I have the most secure paycheck you could ever get in, in at least the U.S. economy. We have benefits. We have people calling us to meetings. They're done virtually, but there are meetings. You know, we have, we're in a structure. You know, you get a lot of identity-related affirmation that you are a full professor at the University of Michigan. So, yeah, we're, we, have, we know some of the challenges of gig work, but certainly not all. Let's talk about what those challenges are. What's your research shown that we can understand better about the common challenges that we all face, all solo workers face? Yeah, we identified six and we actually created a measure of six. We call it the Gig Work Challenge Inventory. And we actually have a website where anyone could go and take this inventory and see how challenged they are in case they're not feeling it themselves personally. And we think this captures pretty well what people go through. So let's see if I can remember all six. It's interesting. I was just looking over the data. The one that has the highest mean across four of the five studies we did to create this measure it was actually kind of surprising. I thought it would be the viability challenge. How do I keep myself fed and clothed? You know, how do I keep the money coming in? And that was the second highest across these studies. The highest was one called career uncertainty challenge. And the challenge is basically, where am I going with all of this? Like, okay, I'm doing this kind of work in the moment. Whether, you know, whether you're a door dasher, you know, or a driver making your money right now, but is that where I'm really going for my whole life? Or if you're an independent scientist, for example, we have a big sample of independent scientists, very high end of the professionalization, but still wondering, like, is this my life? Where, you know, in, in organizations, we have career ladders laid out for us. And so, People may be thinking, do I want that career ladder? Or do I want to go over to this organization and have that career ladder? But they know there is a career. The highest rated challenge was, where am I going with all this? Second was viability. So those two, we have organizational challenge. You know, the fact that when you work solo, you have to manage it all. You know, you're not just doing writing, but you have to do billing and accounts receivable and taxes and keeping the office supplied and all of that stuff. So that's a third one. There's also the identity challenge. You know, when you can't explain your job to your family at, you know, at any holiday when you're around the table, how does it feel? How does it feel if you don't really have a sense of who you are? If you have a mul you're a multiple job holder and you're doing four different things, do you have an identity? So that's a challenge. Another one is the emotional challenge. One of the big findings out of a big qualitative study we did of the working solo was that it's more emotional than other ways of working because the precariousness is anxiety producing and also because it's much more personal. You know, you're a writer, you choose to write about topic X and if topic X goes well, you feel pretty good. If topic X dies on the vine, it's just much more personal. We, you know, because we have our egos much more invested in it. So that challenge was one. We call it the emotional challenge because the research showed that the emotions people have doing this work, there are more highs, more lows, and more oscillation between them. 
And then the final challenge that we identify is that we call the relational challenge, which is, you know, how do I keep a connection with other people? You know, one of the things we discovered in the pandemic is that a lot of relational supports were in place without us really even realizing it. We didn't realize how important it was to have people to say hi to as we walked down the hall every day. And sometimes we dreaded seeing those people. But when they were suddenly gone, everyone's like, I have no human contact. And so that's the final challenge. How do you create a set of human contacts that make your life feel what you need it to feel in order to keep going and make it work? So given all of that, given all the challenges, you've also written quite extensively about the positive sides of solo work and the upside. So can you tell us a bit about what you know on that front? Yeah, the just to stick with the theme I was on, personalization, that, that the work is personal to you, that also is a source of great joy for people, that they get to decide what to write about. They get to decide if they're a ceramicist, if they want to make blue pots or red pots or model pots. You know, and that people really love that. You know, it, it feel, brings out a creative essence in people that they find very life-giving. So that's a big source of joy. The freedom and autonomy, I would say, would be the most. One person I interviewed said, you know, we're quite an oppositional lot, we people who work on our own outside of organizations. We, we don't like being told what to do. We don't like organizations. So getting out and getting that freedom both the creative joy, but also the the freedom from having anyone else impinge on our freedom. Um, those were two of the biggest joys people felt. So I remember reading your ideas about what solo workers need to thrive. And I found this so fascinating because it kind of answered so many questions that I had when I was trying to figure out all of this stuff. Can you kind of give us an overview of what you found was what we need? Because I feel like it's the golden ticket, right? You've got the answer <laughs> that we all need. Well, we have, an, we have an answer, you know, based on, I think we interviewed 65 people, you know, really in-depth interviews about what is your life like? What happens on a good day? What happens on a bad day? What do you do to try to make things work well? You know, our ultimate dependent variable in academic speak, the thing we're trying to explain is what makes a life vital working in this way? And the other thing was what makes your identity viable, where you get to keep a sense of self about who you are and what you're doing. And we boiled it down to four, we called them four connections that the more you're able to keep these four connections alive, the better it feels to be working in this way. You know, it was correlated with the people who talked about more of these were people who had been doing it longer, you know, because I think a lot of people get attracted, let's hold the pandemic aside, get attracted to this kind of work, try it out and then realize, yeah, no, I need a boss to tell me what to do or I don't do anything. Uh, for example, and head back to organizations. And it's just, it's a little bit personality, it's a little bit work style. But the four things that made things better for people, the first kind of relates to the relational challenge I was talking about. It was creating a connection to people. Everyone who felt a vital sense had people or a person in their life. If it was a writer, it was her editor. And she was in touch with her editor on a regular basis. An artist, it was the gallery 
owner that was expecting his work and wanted to talk to him about his work. And by my naming those two types of workers, it should let you know that we didn't just interview, you know, Uber drivers. In fact, we didn't interview them at all. So it was independent consultants, independent graphic designers, independent analysts, all the way up to novelists, writers, artists, who have been working this way for generations. For them, that's not a new way of working. It is the way of working. That's the kind of people we were talking to. The connection to other people served a couple of different functions. One is it helped people keep their focus. You know, if you're talking regularly to the person who's expecting your work, it helps you to stay focused on your work. And the other was to kind of uplift and animate the work. You know, someone that tells you like, these cards you're designing are amazing. Those are important people to have in your life. And for some people, it was their spouse, you know, family member. But for a lot of them, it was connections they created. So connection to people was the first. Connection to place, you know, in the same way that other people can animate and make you feel like your work is more important, you can create your place to do that as well by the objects you have around you, one writer said she had every award, every positive comment that she had ever received, she had taped up on the wall in her office. So she, you know, on bad days, she could go and take a look at it and say, this is who I am. I can do this. But it also was for containment. And by containment, I mean containment of some of the anxieties of working in this way. So one other writer said, I work in a shack on my property. It's six foot by eight foot. I find anything larger than that, I can't work. You know, my anxieties get too large. But so that it was literal containment of his anxieties. So that's your, that's a connection to place, a place that allows you to create focus and create aspiration. The third was a connection to routines, how you start your day, how you end your day. What is your routine for when you're in trouble and how you work your way out of trouble, not knowing which way to go with your science contract, which way to go with your writing. People had routines that also created boundary around their work. You know, so I don't work 24-7. I have a routine that takes me out of my work and into my home life. I have a routine that gets me into my work. And the people that were able to do that through their routines you know, had more vitality in their work life and more a sense of identity. And the final one was a sense of purpose, a connection to a purpose um, in their life. So, you know, a consultant who really knew what he was about said, it really helped me in two ways. One, it helped me know what work to take, what work to let pass me by. And it also helped me feel more like I was doing something important. So those four connections, a connection to people, place, routines, and purpose were really the keys that our sample through their stories kind of brought to life and then we brought to life in our academic writing about it. If we know that about what solar workers need to thrive, are there ways to cultivate that? I mean, are there qualities or mindsets that a solo worker can kind of work towards strengthening, which will allow them to access those four things better. Well, this is what we're working on now. 
many of these are things you can, once you know about them, do them. They're not hard to do. So you could set a getting into work routine and a leaving work routine for yourself. And people do it in a lot of different ways. You know, some writers who who write for contract, you know, they always stop at a point where they're animated instead of taking it all the way to the to its end and then being at an ending point because they find it's easier to come back in the morning in the middle than it is to come back at a raw startup point. So that's one way. So if they're in the middle of a paragraph on something they're really super interested in, they'd recognize, okay, this is a good stopping point. Another person I know puts a post-it on their on their computer saying, you were passionate about writing about X at the end of the day. You know, so it would give them a, when they came in in the morning, give them a way to get into the work. One guy said, I go into a studio nine to five every day. I treat it like a job because it helps me know that I'm an artist. That's an identity issue and sort of keep going in the flow of it. So people developed a lot of kind of micro strategies for managing things. So place, you could, you know, if working out of the bedroom isn't working, you know, is there another space you could carve out in your home to work? Some people manage it just by the door. They keep the door open when they are interruptible and the door closed when they are not, you know, and that tells their children mostly what to do. You could figure out, why do I care about doing this work? That's working on your purpose. You could write that on your wall above your computer so you could glance up to see it. You know, I just finished a book myself for a popular-oriented book, and I had a book motivation document that I wrote. And I pulled that out many times and looked through it going, oh, yeah, this is why I wanted to do this, because those journeys are long. The fourth thing I could mention as sort of help you get into it, we don't have research on this for gig workers, but it's something I wrote about in my book, and it's from Carol Dweck's work. Carol Dweck is a psychologist at Stanford, work on what she initially called incremental mindset or an entity mindset about ability. So an entity mindset is my ability is fixed. I'm as good as I can be. In the leadership area, it's like leaders are born. They're not made. You know, you just some people have it. Some people don't. That's an entity belief. An incremental belief is I can grow. This can be grown. I can become a better leader. I can become smarter. I can become a better negotiator, for example. It's been studied across all those domains now. Later, she called an entity belief a fixed mindset. Its ability is fixed. And she called an incremental belief a growth mindset. So how do you have a growth mindset about gig work, about working independently, about working solo? I mean, it really has to do with those six challenges because you're going to face them. They are inevitable. There's going to be something that's falling off the plate at all times. You know, maybe you're bringing in the money and you're feeling good about where you're going, but your organization has fallen apart. So if you have more of a growth mindset, a learning mindset, I think that would really help. It's like, well, yeah, my organization's falling apart. I got to put that on the agenda to try to fix that now. And having that be okay, that 
Some things are working, some things are falling apart, but really you're doing it all. I love the growth mindset idea. I try quite hard to bring it into how I parent my kids. I try really yes. <laughs> quite hard, but I try yeah, to, to help them see life as an opportunity for learning rather than a kind of I can do it or I can't do it situation. As I mentioned earlier, this season of The Solo Collective is sponsored by Tide. Tide has developed a platform for small businesses, which you can use without opening a bank account with them. It's called Cashflow Insights. Regardless of which bank you use for business banking, you can connect it to the Tide platform. And within 24 hours, you'll be getting insights such as cashflow predictions, credit score monitoring and advice about your income and outgoings. It can even tell you your credit status and help you look for business finance with no impact on your credit score. Connect your business bank account today to Tide and receive a £75 Uber or Uber Eats voucher. Limited availability. Terms and conditions apply. Download the app or Google Tide Cashflow Insights to find out more. One of our sponsors this season is Pensionbee, a way to make setting up a self-employed pension easier. They do a pension specifically for self-employed people, so you can vary your contributions according to your income. One of the things that puts us solo workers off getting a pension is feeling like we won't always be able to afford to contribute. But this way, you can put in lump sums when you get paid for that big job, or trickle money in when things feel a little more precarious. Only 24% of self-employed people contribute into a private pension, even though in the UK, the government will top up our contributions. Go to pensionb.com slash self-employed pension to find out more. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. One of the things that you've written about is this idea of a holding environment, which I found really fascinating. So I wondered if you could kind of talk about what that means and then also explain how a solo worker might be able to create their own holding environment. Yeah, so a holding environment is a idea from what well, comes out of even Freudian psychology, but it comes out of people doing a lot of group work in the 1960s, 1970s, and they talked about everyone in every li- every group life and every individual's life, there are a lot of anxieties that can't be avoided. We all have existential anxieties like, do I matter? Am I loved? Am I going somewhere? They studied, for example, you know, mothers and children, and they said the mother's job is to create a holding environment so the kid could manage those anxieties. Trapes out into the world or across the living room when they're very young and trapes back to the safety of mom, right? So um, they could be bold because the mom was there. And when the anxieties hit, the mom could contain them through her holding. I don't know why dads weren't featured in these stories, but they didn't seem to be. People studying organizations, and one of my co-authors in particular has been at the the vanguard of doing this, have said, you know, organizations really are a holding environment for the people working within them. They basically tell you, you're okay, you work for us. You have an identity, you work for us. You did great that, that quarter, you know, the pat on the head that tells you you matter. When people go solo, all of that's gone. The second part of your question is how do we create it? And that's kind of the question I just answered, though we weren't talking about the holding environment. You can create holding for yourself, and you do it by creating those four connections. Having people to turn to that say to you, you know, what you're doing really matters. 
really write that book, really, you know, do that science that's helping us understand cancer or understand COVID. And when people tell you that, it's containing your anxiety and allowing you to work it out and reduce it. You know, when you create a space that works for you, it's subtle, but it's doing that. You know, routines create holding. You know, when you have a lot of anxiety about, I just screwed something up. It's like, well, okay, what do I do when I screw things up? Oh yeah, I always go back and I look at the code again that I'm creating and I see where the fault is in the code and then I trace out its impact. You know, so it creates holding around those anxieties. And then people place routines and purpose. You know, when you wonder on a late on a Friday afternoon when you're tired and nothing is working and you wonder like, why am I doing this? How could this possibly matter? If you have a sense of purpose, it can help you to connect to that and uh, use that to contain those anxieties so that then you can work them out. Then you might go home and talk to your spouse about them, etc. But but the the four connections kind of get you started on that work. I just I find that so interesting because I think so much of what I have thought about over the years is around this tension, this kind of inevitable tension between wanting some of the things that are good about working for an organization or in an office or in a traditional job versus wanting all the freedoms that come with solo work and trying to figure out how you can kind of take some of the good bits without having to have the bits that don't work for you. I remember when I left The Observer, I definitely missed things that I wasn't expecting to miss. From an identity point of view, quite a lot of that was about belonging and feeling like I had a space in a place that was known and then I suddenly didn't and I had to create this sense of belonging myself and I made some really bad choices about how I did that over the years like I chose to do work that was high status but not actually purpose driven for me I used money as a motivating factor and and I think all of that was fundamentally in pursuit of a sense of belonging it really, you know, it was a really hard thing to to experience. And I was quite young as well. I was only in my 20s. And again, I think that, that that reflects what you're saying. It's that, you know, I didn't have a holding environment, really. I hadn't had the opportunity to think about this stuff and to create even a particularly brilliant space to work in. What does solo working do to our sense of identity, do you think? First of all, I I love the story, your story. It's interesting, you know, I mean, it's not surprising because we talk to a lot of people like you that your experience would be reflected in our work, but it's been very affirming as I've read your book and talk with you that it's like, yeah, this this is what people feel. Knowing we have a place in life matters. It's an existential issue. It's a life issue for all of us. So you asked how important is identity I think identity is super important. I think it's a it's a life issue for everyone. Who am I? Do I matter? How do I connect in? Those are just foundational questions of life and living, no matter what path you choose, even if you chose never to work in an organization or never to work, because for some reason you didn't have to. You still have that question. I do think it gets challenged more for people working solo than people in organizations 
people in organizations can kind of go to sleep on that question. And I think they're more likely to have kind of midlife crises, whereas you have worked it out more incrementally and through more ups and downs on the regular. So I think that's true. And then now you're sort of hedging into what one of my colleagues studies as multiple job holding. And multiple job holding has a whole different set of issues that she would be a great person on your podcast to talk about multiple job holding because I think it's slightly different. Most gig workers are multiple job workers. You know, there are phases where you're more of that and less of that. You know, if you have one, two-year huge contract, you're not really a multiple job holder. When that runs out and you take on four things, you know, you're more of a multiple job holder. And then some people have kind of built their identity around being a multiple job holder and liking that you know, that array of things that they're doing and and wanting to continue with that. So I think identity is important for all of us. It's not more important for solo workers, but I think it's more challenged. And so therefore they think about it more than do organizational workers. And when organizational workers finally are confronted with it, I think it has more dramatic effects on their life. But no, there's no science to that. That's just my impression looking at people. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder whether you feel more at sea when you retire, if you've been somebody who's been in a job consistently throughout your working life. Yes, a lot of people are starting to study uh, retirement as a challenge. It seems like a challenge for sure. Yeah, but I imagine if you go from a super large dominant identity as a banker or as a professor, and then suddenly you don't have that, I imagine it's very challenging. You might have other identities fall back on. And and if you're like any of my professor colleagues, you don't ever just stop. You know, they stop, but they still write, or they stop, but they still teach. You know, and for you, you could drop two-thirds of things you're doing and keep one-third, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And if my parents are anything to go by, the, the genetic kind of um, <laughs> hangover will be that I carry on working, right, <laughs> all the way through. They've, they've both continued to do all sorts of things and are probably busier now than they were when they worked. Just to come to a conclusion, I'd love to know whether you think that the pandemic, I wonder if, from your perspective, it's changed the way that we look at solo workers or freelancers. I wondered whether it's improved the way that non-solo workers might look at solo workers because so many of them had a little taste of what it is to work in the way that we work. Yeah, I imagine there is more familiarity. So it's sort of like, oh, okay, so this is what it's like to work at home. And it's annoying to have someone think that I'm not working because I am working at home. And I, so I imagine people are over that hurdle. I don't know. I get a little offended at the we are all gig workers now because I feel like people who really are gig workers carry a lot of additional burden that we've described that people who work in an organization and happen to be working at home don't carry. It's like a bigger circle of what it means to work solo, and people have had a taste of part of it, both on the challenge side and the joy side, because you don't get that jolt of joy of really creating something that you're bringing to the world that no one asked for, but you think it might be a contribution, and and then finding out that it is, it's it's very, you know, really a cool thing, you know, whereas 
people and organizations, they participate in bringing that kind of thing to the world. But a lot of the big decisions are made above them, and you know, and they they actually bear very little. Well, they bear some burden if it fails, but they always have bl- someone they can blame. That's one of the things working in an organization gives you is someone else to blame besides you. So that frees them. So they don't they don't get the the super high and they don't get the super low, which which is freeing. So you know, so I don't know what's going to happen. Whether I mean, I know I do believe that there will be more people working in this style because organizations are not going to go back to having everyone come in constantly. So that will be true. But whether there'll be more people working truly solo. Yeah, I don't know. No, I think it's really complicated. And I think it's in, it's a very difficult thing to try and analyse just at the moment. I think it's going to be a few years before the real numbers kind of shake down. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time. I don't doubt that work has changed. And I completely agree that organisations aren't going to go back in the same way. But what it means for the kind of world of self-employment, I think, is still very much up for grabs. Thank you so much for this. This has been such a delight. I feel like I've my, mined your expertise, <laughs> which I'm very grateful for. Oh, you're totally welcome. There was so much to learn in that conversation, didn't you think? I love the way in which her research mirrors the experience that so many of us have, like so many of the people that I've talked to in the course of doing this solo related work and research have had the same sort of experiences that her data reflects and then my life and my experiences have reflected it too and I just feel like it's so validating and so vindicating to have somebody study the way that we work and understand it and then also offer clarity on how to do it. I mean, it's just, it's so nice. It's so valuable. I really, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to find out more about Sue Ashford, you can go to her website, which is susanashford.com. And actually, Susan Ashford is the name on her book, The Power of Flexing, which I massively recommend as well. She is on Twitter, Sue Ashford. She's on LinkedIn, Sue Ashford. And she is on Instagram, Susan J. Ashford. And if you want to find out more about me and working by yourself, you can go to howtoworkalone.com or find me on Instagram at Bex Seal and on Twitter at Rebecca Seal. It would be so brilliant for us if you could recommend this podcast to just one other solo worker who you think could benefit from it. This series is brilliantly produced by Hester Kant. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 